Welcome to the table. My name is Debbie Manning, and we're so glad that you're with us tonight. Hey, we have an ask for you. We would love it if you would show, share this service, this video on your Facebook. We've had lots of new people join us during this season of COVID, and we'd like to continue to invite people into this time together. So thanks for doing that. The other thing we wanted to make sure we talked about is that um, we have been communicating that we'll be worshiping outdoors on Sunday, November 1st. Well, right now, um, in this moment, it is 35 degrees, and they're saying that it feels a little more like 27. So we are not only holding that loosely, we're thinking that most likely won't happen. But we'll keep you posted in the next 10 days as to what happens. And either way, we will be worshiping together, whether that's outside or we'll do that online. The other thing that we want to make sure that you continue to do is stay connected. So if you'd like to be connected, all you need to do is text TABLE to 33222 and we will indeed get you connected, and you can find out about all the things that we have going on. And right now, our team is uh, creatively brainstorming of ways that we might be able to get connected, stay connected throughout the next few months as we continue to worship online together. Last but not least, we continue to be grateful for your generosity. Um, we have been able to continue to be the church because of that generosity. And not only with your monthly online giving, which you can go to our website and you can click on the giving tab for that if you'd like to start giving or up your giving. We also want to mention that um, it is year-end giving time. And we have been so grateful for that in the past. Those the year-end giving has helped us keep our heads above water a little bit. So we invite you into that. So that's all we have for you tonight as far as announcements. But again, we are so glad you are with us. And I'm going to turn it over to Matt, who has the message. Hey, good evening, friends. My name is Matt Moberg. I'm one of the pastors here at the table. We're so happy that you are here with us, joining us in this virtual church experience. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for staying with us. You know, in the midst of how crappy the weather is outside, at least we still have this. We still have each other. Uh, so thanks for showing up. Right now we're in a series called Jesus for Precedent. It's going to lead us all the way up to when we choose our next president. But before we get into the nuts and bolts of where we're trying to go tonight, I guess I got to tell you this story. Well, it's one of those stories I'm like having second thoughts now about. It's one of those stories maybe I shouldn't tell. Like parents, maybe grab the local children's ears and just, just clog them up for a minute or two. But it, it is, um, it's so good. This past week, I was sitting in my office at my house, main level as everybody else tends to, to circulate. And I was doing my work. I mean, I was, I was deep in studying the word of the Lord and uh, tweaking fantasy team, when all of a sudden, outside of the doors of my office, I hear my eldest son, Wyatt, and my second son, Sawyer, start to bicker. And, and what typically happens when the two get at it is that the volume just increases bit by bit till it's a full-on explosion and there's blood everywhere. So I can hear that that is happening. Sawyer is about half the size as Wyatt, and Sawyer is in a season right now, God love him, where he's a swinger. Now, that's a weird term. <laughs> Let's edit that. Um, what I mean by that is he, uh, he is not as big as everybody else, so he just starts punching people. He's a puncher. That would be a better term. He's a puncher. And so I can hear the volume escalating between the two, and I'm waiting for the jab to be thrown when all of a sudden 
I can hear it. And then I hear Wyatt's body hit the ground and Wyatt start to cry as he is laying on the floor. And then I hear Sawyer's two little feet step over Wyatt's in pain body. And he looks at him and he says, I'm Joe Biden and I approve this message. <laughs> Christian doesn't think that's <laughs> Every time I tell it, it's so funny to me. It's amazing though, isn't it? I'm Joe Biden and I approve this message. The reason I wanted to start with that story is that I could ask you this question. Who is the voice that hangs over your actions that says whether or not they approve what you just did? When you think about the particular path that you are on, like whose voice is offering you up some sort of endorsement? Whose voice is signing off on what you just said, where you just stepped, what you just did? Who, who's giving you the green light? Who's saying, good job, son? Who's saying, keep on going, daughter? Who, whose voice is saying that they are this and they approve this message? Now, ultimately, since you are here and I am here and we're doing the whole church thing together, my hunch is that we both would probably land on a similar page and say that we take our cues for our life from the life of Jesus the Christ the one who was the curtain that lifted so that we get a glimpse at ultimate reality, God. That's, that's who we're looking to, right? Like that's why we're getting together in this space is to figure out what can we see in the person of Jesus that helps us understand like how we live out the rest of our lives, which if this is, if this is the case, and I'm kind of going on a limb and assuming that it is, here's the question that I want to ask. Is what you see in Christ consistent with what you are doing in your life? in your engagements with your partner or with your parents, in your crossing of paths with people you kind of know but don't really want to know, in the way that you spend your time, your talents, your treasures, in all of that and more, in the aftermath of your actions, do you walk away with the voice of Jesus in your ear saying, I'm Jesus of Nazareth and I approve this message? Because ultimately that's the aim, right? I mean, ultimately, we're all here trying to, you know, reform our lives or do like a factory reset so we can go back to the original manufacturing settings. We're trying to go back to the image of Christ that we are born in, born in the image of God. That's where we're trying to go. And we, we say that like that's the aim of faith, not as a test to see whether or not we are going to get God's grace, but as a testament to the grace that we already did get and that we're trying to live out faithfully as stewards of God's good news, God's good love. And so while we may disagree on 10,000 different tangents that are tangled up in our Christian tradition, the one consensus that I would assume we can find is that we are all here to look more like Jesus, who we believe is what God looks like. That's where we're trying to go. And so when we try to think about that task of retuning our stories to look like his, I think one of the questions that we have to ask is, what does God look like? If indeed we're trying to be more godly, what is it that God looks like? I saw this Marvin Gaye thing this past week. I don't know if I sent this to you, Christian. It's amazing. There's the song, the song Heard It Through the Grapevine. They isolated his vocals. And so they stripped away the bass, stripped away the drums, stripped away the Wurlitzer, and you just heard him sing. It's like, oh my gosh. That's what made Gaye so good. Like he has this, when you strip away all of the, all of this, all of this, all of the religious paraphernalia, all of the, uh, the rituals, the small groups, the Sunday services, the sermons, the sacred texts that we claim and are claimed by, when you take it all away and you see just Jesus lifting the curtain, what do you see about God? What is it that your eyes actually take in? 
There was a psalmist thousands of years ago who was a songwriter named Ethan the Ezraite, who after spending sleepless nights just staring at the sky that was freckled, filled with stars, and pondering like, why am I here? Why is anything here? What's the point of the whole thing? What is going on? How did the whole thing come together? And finally, he reaches a conclusion in the 89th Psalm where he writes down, Olam hesed yebanye. Olam hesed yebanye, which in English translates to the world is built on love. Whatever we are, however we got here, whatever it is that we're trying to make sense of right now, the impetus behind it all is Olam Hesed Yimbani. The world was built on love. Love was the thing that came before us. Love is the thing that sustains underneath us. Love is the point. Love is the aim. It is all Olam Hesed Yimbani. Hesed. Hesed is this, this Hebrew word. When we're talking right now in this series, you guys, about um, what are the key cornerstones of Jesus that he stood on, that kind of he derived his own political strategy from, that he derived his own ethical framework from. One of the key concepts that's, that runs from start to stop in the pages of the scripture is the concept of Hesed. Now, it's a tough one because Hesed is basically an untranslatable word. We have about 169 different translations for this one specific Hebrew word found in six different English Bibles. And so we don't necessarily know how to make sense of it, but our our hunch is this, is that we think that the Greek word agape, which is like the peak form of love, it comes from hesed. And we also find that in the different English translations that try to make sense of this Hebrew word, there is some thematic bonding happening. Hesed is often translated as loyal love, steadfast love, stubborn love, enduring love, loving kindness, mercy, and more. And Walter Brueggemann, he calls it tenacious solidarity. I'm going to stick with you. I'm going to stay the course. But it's an untranslatable word. In the same way that if I were to ask you, why do you love that kid? Or how do you love that kid? Or how much do you love that kid? You would stumble and fumble and try to bring some kind of word around it. But the size of your love would would outweigh the width of a word. And so it's just not up for the task. That is what is happening when we look at Hesed. That is why we need poets like Ethan the Ezraite to help us find words. I actually would say that the closest we come to, to building some form of a definition around what Hesed is trying to hold out for us is what we find in 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love passage where Paul says that love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Why is there always an always in this kind of love? Because, as Paul would tell you, Hesed holds on where others let go. Hesed is the heart of God. It is this stubborn, steadfast, always expanding and never stopping, committed love that perpetually reaches out regardless of whether or not the reached one ever reaches back. That's what Hesed is all about. This is why in the third century, Rabbi Shimlai, he said that the Torah begins and ends with Hesed. It's both the aim and the arrival. Hesed is the point, Hesed is the push, Hesed is the pull, and everything in between. Two centuries before Rabbi Shimlai, there was another rabbi named Yeshua of Nazareth who once was approached by somebody in the streets and said, think about all that we just read in the Torah, all of those 613 plus laws. What is the, what's the point? What's the whole thing really about? And Rabbi Yeshua, he said, love God and love others. That's the aim, Hesed. 
uh, one particular afternoon with that rabbi, Rabbi Jesus. Um, we were walking with him and he talked about how God is perfect. Why is God perfect? Because he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the innocent alike. He sends his rain on both the victims and the villains alike. And then he said that we should do the same. And we said, no, thank you. Jesus says that we also should love in such a way that the limitations of tribalism or taste, they have no say in how far we're about to stretch. Jesus said that, um, it's actually the only time he does say this. He said, if you want to be perfect like God is perfect, if you actually want to take seriously this pursuit of being God, Lee, not God, but God, Lee, like God, then the only way to be perfect like God is to love enemies like God loves. You see, Hesed is this way that we, we draw circles that includes everybody. And who does that? I mean, the reason why human beings, we draw circles is to make sure that we can fit inside of them. But Hesed says that story no longer fits with the story of Jesus. And so stretch a little further than you previously have gone. It is the most beautiful image of what Christian covenant looks like in its purest form. This is why Christian covenant, if it's not inclusive, it isn't Christian. Because to be Christian covenant like Christ first defined, it has to be expanding, inviting, enveloping those that we would rather push out. It has to be perfect like God is perfect and sending rain on the victims and villains alike. Why? Because said love does not allow the deficiencies of the object of our love to determine the duration of our loving. It, it keeps going. The psalmist tells us that the world is built on love. Olam said yibanye. The world is built on love. But the subtext that you will hear if you've tried any part of your life to do serious loving is that the world being built is gonna look like loss. It just is. Love isn't like a, a always escalating up and to the right quick path to success. You're not going to find it in a self-help book on how to get rich and make friends. That's just not the path that love lays out. Who said love plays the long game. It avoids instant gratification. It reaches for fidelity and not responding to just what is effective. I know Paul says that love never fails in the end, but live a little bit and you find out that the lovers... They're often the ones who look like the failures, the ones who get cut down before their time. Dorothy Day, she used to tell us that love is a harsh and dreadful thing to ask of us, but it is the only answer. Why does Day see so much dread inside of love? Because Day knew love not like a Hallmark card, but as a Hesed type calling. They understood that love doesn't episodically reach. Love is consistently stretching. It is always reaching. It is always pushing, always giving, always running on fidelity without simultaneously measuring its efficacy. said, holds on where other people let go. So, so do you? Do you hold on? Like, do you, do you keep loving when it's hard? Or do you stop at that point? Do you have that steadfast love that replicates the love that God has for you? Or do you stop? It makes me think of the, um, the Chinese bamboo tree. I hadn't heard about this before. I don't really know much about trees or the great outdoors in general. But 
There's this tree in China where, the bamboo tree, where if you wanted to raise and grow a bamboo tree, <laughs> I'm already trying to speak about plants as if I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you grow, you raise, plant, bamboo tree. If you're trying to raise up a bamboo tree, it requires proper uh, nutrients in the soil, daily watering, um, oxygen, space, and a lot of patience. What I read this past week was so interesting because it talks about how after a year of growing this tree, nothing seems to be growing. After year one, you look at the spot where you planted the seeds and all you still see is dirt. After year two, still dirt. After year three, dirt. After year four, dirt. But then after four years of tending to that soil, after four years of showing up and reaching out, after four years of taking the time to care about something more than you care about yourself, after four years of having a Hesed-like hold on this tree that you can't see, but that you can sense is on its way, then comes year five when the earth starts to shake and a tree breaks through the surface. And when it does, it goes zero to 60 real quick. The, the bamboo tree grows about 90 feet in the span of six weeks. The bamboo tree can grow sometimes three feet in one day. It's one of the fastest growing plants that is out there in the world. And when you watch that stock go up so quickly, you recognize that for the past four years, that land that looks so bare, that ground that looks so empty, the, the, the sweat equity that you put into it that did not seem to bring a return on your investment, all of a sudden you recognize that you were laying the foundation for a better world to be built on, a world that would not have happened if not for said hands like yours tilling the land, trusting that how it is right now is not how it always will be. It makes me think about South Africa. You know, last year we celebrated 25 years after the first free all-race election in post-apartheid South Africa. When you read the accounts of those who were anticipating that day, the election day, you read about people coming in, and it's either from South Africa or the States, wherever the eyes were falling on that particular day, people were a mess. Like people were, were bound up in panic and fear and worry because they were convinced that there would be some kind of violence surrounding this vote. After 50 years of apartheid, after hundreds of years of racial terror, nobody could actually confidently conceive that there would be a peaceful transfer of power taking place when the dust all settles. But if you ask those same people who were scared at the start of that day what they still remember since that day, they won't tell you about guns, they won't tell you about blood, they will not pass on to you images of war. Instead, they will tell you about the lines. Instead, they will tell you about the thousands of people that came out and waited it out and stayed the course for hours that day because they believed that their voice was essential to shaping the public and the common good. One of my favorite images that I have hanging in my office that I always love to look at for a source of encouragement and a reminder of what Hesed is all about is this photo that came out of Soweto on that day. It shows, as you can see, thousands of people zigging and zagging through an empty lot, waiting to cast their ballot. There were lines of people on that day on the side of the highway. There were people lining up in small towns, moving together on dirt roads, people that were 70, 80, and 90 years old, dancing and singing and cheering their way as they waited in the hot sun to say, I have a say in who we're about to be, and I intend to make my voice heard. And then at the end, as we all know, a bamboo tree broke through the surface. Nelson Mandela became the first black head of the state and the first 
elected in a fully representative democratic election, stretching past the limitations of apartheid, and also the, the numbing apathy that was starting to sprawl across the land. And when we think about Mandela's rise, when we think about his, his moment here where he is chosen by the people, we can't help but think about the 27 years that he spent prior to caring for the roots that preceded his rise. Nelson Mandela, for 27 years, was caged up in a maximum security prison on Robben Island. The conditions there were brutal. He was inflicted with daily heavy labor. He was not permitted to have socks or underwear or even pants when the weather got cold. Many of his friends were murdered when he was in there. His first son died when he was in there and he couldn't go to his funeral. His mom died when he was in there and he couldn't go to her funeral. His wife was kicked out of where she lived and moved into one of the worst parts of the town and he could do nothing to stop it. But he never stopped insisting that the South Africa as it was right then is not the same South Africa that it was going to be. He, he didn't waver on his commitment to trusting that the best was still to come and that love would lead the way. All those years of suffering, all those years of struggle and setback, all those years of labor where the fruit of his fight stubbornly lay dormant beneath the silence of the earth. But then on April 27th, 1994, at 75 years old, the bamboo tree broke through the surface and the fruits of Hesed interrupted the poisons of hate. And yet the Hesed still holds even after it did so. Hesed doesn't stop when a victory's been gained. It stays the course because if it can't be won through love, then it's not worth winning. Nelson Mandela understood that the fight is really in how we choose to fight. How we fight is the fight in and of itself. If it's not going to be Hesed, if we're not going to be led by love, then what are we doing but reinforcing the very weapons that we profess to be against? And so there's this moment where the entire national party government recognized that their time of fascism was over and that a new day had come, and they sat down to meet with Mandela. And they were, um, which by the way, is something that they said they would never do. They would never meet with this man, but now they were forced to meet with this man. And as they waited for him to walk into the room, all of their worst fears were playing out in their minds. What would he do to us after all that we have done to him? How would he make us pay? What, what would he come in and do to us? And then he came in. Nelson Mandela walks into those room, carrying with him 27 years of pain and torture and injustice. And then instead of condemning them and screaming at them from the other side of the table, he spoke in their, he spoke in their Afrikaner tongue and he sang the praises of their people, what they've achieved and what they've created. He talked about... Um, how storied and great their generals were, how astounding their agricultural feats were. And he looked across the table and he said, with a people such as you, I know a just settlement is possible. And everybody knew it was over at that point. Everybody knew that the, the fight was over because when you are dealing with an opponent who has a higher opinion of you than you have for yourselves, when you, when you are sitting down with somebody who sees a future that isn't involved in fighting against you, but is actually proposing to fight for you, asking to fight with you, saying, I'm not coming to get you, but I'm asking if you will come with us, then it's over. Apartheid isn't the monster we thought it is. Hope, this bamboo tree that's rising up, it really does have its roots in something that was beautiful, true, and lasting. 
Come with us, Mandela said. And I, I just, I think that's what Jesus has always been saying to us. Come with me, the one uh, that doesn't look like Barabbas, the weak one, the, the bloodied up one, the one that gets pushed down by the powers that be, that think they're victorious on Friday because they have no idea what's coming their way by Sunday. When the writer in Hebrews asks how it is that Jesus was able to uh, do all that he did and specifically endure the cross and the shame embedded inside of it, the writer says that it really comes down to the fact that Jesus never misinterpreted what's now as a verdict that would limit what's coming in the future. He didn't allow what he saw in the what's now to interrupt what he knew was coming in the what's next. Faithful love is a fighting love that gets knocked down again and again and again and again and again, trusting that at some point the bamboo tree does break through the surface. That how it is right now isn't how it will always be. And so if you think about this moment, it's Thursday we're recording this. Tonight is this debate. Um, there'll be a lot of, it'll get weird. It's been weird this far. There's no reason to believe it won't right now. Our democracy is a fragile thing. Uh, our problems are many. And yet still I do believe that the soil is fertile. I, I still believe that the task on people like us in a time like this is to continue to hold on with a Hesed type love and plant those seeds of love, trusting that how it is right now isn't how it'll always be. Because after all, Olam Hesed Yibanye, the world is built on love. Walter Brueggemann defines Hesed as tenacious solidarity. That's what this is. When we come together for communion every Sunday night, it's tenacious solidarity, this trust and hope in God's steadfast love, the kind of love that we're called to. On the night before Jesus died, he sat at a table with his disciples and he took bread. And he broke that bread. And he said, this is my body broken for you. When you eat this, remember me. And he took the cup and he poured wine into the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. When you drink from this cup, remember me. So that's what we do. We take the bread and we dip it into the cup and we remember Hesed, that steadfast love, the, the love that God has for us, the love that God calls us to, that love that has us hanging in there for the long haul. And we get to do that together. So when you take your bread and you dip it into your cup, please hear these words. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. And now together we pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. <laughs>